Good morning, church. Good, good response there. I like that. If you have your Bibles this morning, open them to the book of Colossians, and we will be at the tail end of chapter 3, and we will crack open for the first time chapter 4 this morning, even if it's just for a few moments. Colossians chapter 3, and we will begin reading at verse 22. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. May God grant his richest blessing to this reading of his word. Slavery is an inherently difficult topic. It's difficult in the way that ugly things always are. It's difficult because of the awfulness that human beings can do to one another. It reminds us most severely of our collectively great depravity and shamefulness before God. It reminds us how easy it is for those who are in power to oppress the image of God that it sees in other people for its own gain, to use economic, racial, and military means to place one in power and position over another. Slavery is ugly, makes us uncomfortable, and it should. But it is also difficult for other reasons for us today. Our country is stained with a particular sort of slavery, a particular blight, made more difficult and longer lasting through the way in which it was operated and sustained along racial lines, and even, especially in the South, through scriptural appeals to slavery. This is especially important for us. We are, after all, a Southern Baptist church, and the Southern in our name has ties directly to slavery. We are Southern only because we didn't want to be Northern. We're not, but you don't understand what I mean. (laughs) So what ends up happening is this becomes an easy area for attack. Because there is rightfully so strong an insistence today that slavery is wrong, and it is indeed wrong, and we should be happy that we have moved in a direction where each and every person can understand that slavery is wrong. The fact that Scripture was used as a stronghold for those who sought to support it, many think that the Bible then supports slavery in all of its forms. And as slavery is seen as evil and Scripture does not forbid it, Scripture is therefore seen as evil. Not only does this undermine the ethical nature of Scripture, but if we likewise agree that slavery is wrong, we are seen to be nitpicking those things that we want to uphold in the Bible. After all, the Bible has slavery all over it. And so if we would stand together and say that slavery is wrong, they would say, well, why do you think that Scripture has been progressed on the issues of slavery, but it hasn't on issues of sexual liberality? Aren't you just going back and then again nitpicking the things that you want to be true from the things that Scripture says? In the passage just read, for example, there is no indication that slavery was to be put to an end. There's none. 
Paul does not forbid slavery. He has instructions for masters in this passage. What shall we Christians say to this? More than that, though, we can get lost in all these sort of meta issues about what slavery is and how the Bible treats it and then lose the particular thrust of this passage, which is not just for slaves and not just for masters, but for anyone who might be employed or be an employer over other people who might be in a position of servitude or might be in a position of overseeing people. These have great and important instructions for us about how we are to live our lives there. We no longer think that slavery is a viable economic institution and none of us finds ourselves in the position of a master or slave. What exactly does this passage mean for us? Generally, we must say again that scripture does not forbid slavery. We'll be very clear about that. You cannot find a verse in scripture that says that you shall not own slaves. However, I would say this, that at every turn, slavery is reformed in scripture. It is reformed in Scripture. Time this morning will not allow us to look at the Old Testament in great and exacting detail. So we will go to one particular passage and we will try to observe what it is that Scripture says about slavery and the way in which it says it. So if you would, if you have a Bible with you, open it up to Exodus chapter 21. Again, what I'm going to say this morning about what the Old Testament says towards slavery is not going to be exhaustive. Certainly, there will be questions. Even within this chapter, there are numerous passages that should elicit many questions for us about how we should think through slavery, how we should think through interacting with other people, even who are subordinates to us or that we are subordinate to. Nevertheless, this does helpfully give us a glimpse as to what slavery was in Old Testament times. Before we begin, though, I would like to issue a word of caution about translations and to note this very strongly for you. Both in Hebrew and in Greek, we have the ability to use the same word to imply both servitude and servant and slave and slavery. Those words can have multiple meanings and generally speaking, they are determined on context. English doesn't work like this. In English, we have slave, which implies something very strong for us, and we have the word servant, which implies something like a slave, but clearly there's distinctions built into that. The Old Testament and the New Testament in the languages in which they were written do not know of this exacting difference, okay? And this was exasperated by American slavery and how much we have wanted to distinct ourselves from that institution, okay? So we don't use the word slave very often. If you have a Bible that has footnotes, you will notice that even in here, not in Exodus, but back in Colossians, when scriptures had in the ESV the word slaves, many other translations would use the word servants there. Okay? Paul oftentimes, for instance, in Philippians 1.1, says that he is a servant of Jesus Christ or a slave of Jesus Christ. It's hard to tell which way we should translate these things. So writ through both the Old Testament and the New Testament, when this idea of slavery or servanthood comes up, it can mean multiple things. The Old Testament, sometimes it it means slavery, just like we think of it, as though the Hebrews were slaves in Egypt. Sometimes it simply means service and servitude, that you were under an order of servitude to people. It even means something of serving God. So, For numerous times when you read, they will not serve me. That is the same Hebrew word that's used for slave at times. 
So we need to keep that in account as we go through these passages. It will help us understand these issues. In Exodus 21, however, we have the idea of servitude or slavery. The ASV translates this as slavery, which is not a bad way to translate it. And we will read those first 11 verses. Exodus 21, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her master's, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever." When a man sells his daughter as a slave, and here is where I would say that sounds horrible, and the ESV probably did a bad job translating that as slave. It should probably be into service, okay? And we'll talk about why that is here in a minute, but just to get that out of the way. She shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with, as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Whoever strikes a man, oh, we won't read that part. So that was, those are 11 verses. I, I got over exuberant there. You'll ignore don't strike a man. Okay, so we clear that up. Okay, so a couple of things to point out. Okay, First, in this passage, although slavery is real and present, and certainly there is an aspect of servitude and slavery, it's not American slavery. It's not exactly employment and servitude the way we think of it as, but it's sort of a mixture of those two things. You can see first that the slaves have many, many rights. Okay, If you want to call them slaves, they can be called slaves, but they have a ton of rights. Later on in this passage, they have the same rights that the image of God does, that you are not allowed to strike them. If you knock an eye out of a slave, he's free. He is is not yours to treat however you would like. You may not kill a slave. You can't treat them in that manner. He says very clearly here, if he comes in single, he can go out single. If he comes in married, his wife is his. He gets to go out. If you have a slave girl, though, that you give to him for him, right? It's his. He gets that. Because she was in service to you, then he gets to make a choice, okay? Now, we might not understand why all these institutions are there, but that's not really the point this morning. The point is that the slavery that the scriptures allowed looked not only vastly different than the slavery that we employed in America, but vastly different than the slavery that was employed everywhere else, Thus, there's a great deal of dignity and rights given to the slave, Leviticus makes it clear that if the slavery is for economic purposes, this is in Leviticus 25 and 26, the interest will not be applied. So if somebody owes you a great deal of money and he gives himself to you to pay you back, you cannot charge him interest and then keep him in indentured servitude forever. Okay? While these rules are laid out for Israelites, notice that this is a brother, a Hebrew slave, They generally apply to any slave. For instance, in Exodus 22, 
verse 21, we read this. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Generally speaking there, you are not to treat others as the Egyptians treated you. How did the Egyptians treat them? They oppressed them in slavery. Okay? God is laying out a framework saying, yes, there might be something that we could call slavery here, but it looks distinctly different than what happened in Egypt. And certainly the rules that we have laid out looks distinctly different than what happened in America. As far as the female servants of verse 7 and following, there are another couple things that we can mention. The first thing that we hear is that she shall not go out as the male servants do. And feminists cry their voices out, saying that, again, this is the oppression of females. But this is far from oppressing to females. This is meant to protect them. This is not the patriarchy keeping them down. This is patriarchy helping them and supporting them. There was no college degrees to be had by these women. There is no climbing of the corporate ladder. Servant girl released and free was headed for a clear path of either destitution or prostitution. Those were her primary options. By saying that she was not to be set free, in year seven, you were not just to let them go into nothing. But the clear indi indications are that you were to treat her as family. Notice what he says. If you give, keep her for yourself, you are to treat her as a wife. If you were to give her to your son, you are to treat her as a daughter. There is care and there is concern poured all over this servant girl. In essence, the slavery in which the Israelites were allowed to partake looked a great deal different than either the slavery which occurred in America or at any of the surrounding countries when Exodus was written. Slaves were afforded basic rights given to all people, were upheld as those who bear the image of God, and they were protected. It might not be everything we want Scripture to say about it. It might not even look how we would want Scripture to make slavery look but it is nevertheless a corrective to how slavery was done amongst the surrounding peoples. The New Testament continues this theme. So if you would, not only flip back to Colossians, but go a couple of books further to the book of Philemon. A gentleman who is mentioned at the end of Colossians by the name of Onesimus is mentioned in Philemon. Onesimus is a runaway slave. He has come to Paul and apparently has been converted by the preaching of Paul and he serves Paul. And as it so happens under the providence of God, Onesimus has come to Paul who is a good friend of Philemon, his master. Now, of all the times in the New Testament where we would expect Paul <clears throat> to rise up and say, slavery is evil, be done with it, what does Paul do? He grabs his, his brother Onesimus and says, you need to go back to Philemon. And he sends him away with a letter to Philemon, which is what we have here. Notice what Paul says in verses 15 and 16 of the book of Philemon about why Onesimus ran away and how under God's providence he was to handle this. Notice what he says. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, not why he ran away. Notice the passive there to make it seem like there was somebody else involved, namely God. Why did God allow him to be parted for you for a while? That you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave. He's still a slave, right? But Paul's saying no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Listen, Paul does not explicitly forbid slavery, 
but this all but crushes it. Let's be very clear. In practice, there is nothing to slavery here. You are now treating him like a brother. Yes, you might be in authority over him, but Paul clearly says he is a brother to you. You are to treat him as a brother, and Paul is confident that Philemon will treat him this way. While the exact nature of slavery is not changed, Paul doesn't stand up and say, listen, all slavery is done with impracticality, how he expects Christian masters to operate, it effectively ends slavery forever. If you are a Christian, there is nothing that looks like slavery that you should be engaged in. There's just nothing. You can call it slavery. Paul continues to call it slavery, but it ain't slavery. So why not just simply end slavery? Why not call for all of the slaves simply to be released? First, let us be very clear that the people who all supported the overthrowing of slavery in England and in America were all Christian men and women. They were Christian from beginning to end. You can say whatever you want to about how the slavery upholds, and you can talk to a bunch of secularists today about how it was Christian men in the South who were opposing it, but the only, or who were supporting it, but the only people who were opposing it vehemently in the North and in England were all Bible-believing Christians. There wasn't a bunch of atheists or secularists standing up saying, this is a horrible institution, we need to get away with it for economic or, I don't know, any other reasons that they might dream up. Secondly, Paul's voice, while respected within the Christian community, was not respected in the wider Christian world. If he told Philemon that he cannot own slaves, then it would get out that slavery is wrong and Christians should abandon it. Slaves would abandon it and Christianity would get the boot of Rome very, very hard. It would clearly invite persecution on a level that Christianity, according to, I think, Paul, wouldn't be able to stand there are very good practical reasons why Paul allows for slavery to continue and very good reasons why we would then look at it today and say, no longer can it continue. So Paul then turns to those who are slaves and masters and tell them how they ought to behave in their positions. This brings us then back to Colossians. First, Paul implores servants to serve with sincerity you are to serve with sincerity. You should understand this doesn't mean that they should blindingly support sin simply because the master wants them to engage in sin. Clearly, Paul wouldn't think that. After all, he will turn around and say, you are to act as though you are serving the Lord. Okay? Well, you can't sin and say that you're serving the Lord. This clearly doesn't mean that you are to serve sin. But it clearly does mean that you are to do what they ask of you, no matter how major or how minor. They were not to be, however, people pleasers. They were to give themselves over to the task which they were given with a fullness of heart. They were not to be slacking and become lazy towards the things that would receive little praise. Doing the things that they know would be noticed in the light, but skimping and being lazy and selfish on the things that they know that their masters didn't care much about. They were to give themselves wholeheartedly over to the tasks that were provided to them. Paul admonishes them, you must work hard at it all, sincerely longing for the work to be done well. Christian, does this, does this describe you? That is a high calling. When you put your hand to the plow, do you look back? Now, I know that Jesus uses that in another way, but he also means that there's hard work ahead. 
Do you do the hard work that is given to you with all of your heart, sincerely devoting yourself to it, even if people know, even if you know that other people will never see the fruit of that labor? Do you put yourself to it? Do you strive to only do well at the tasks you know will go noticed? Many people seek to make an appearance out of being neat and orderly, of having hard work manifested in their lives, but only in those things that they know that they will get noticed for. That cannot be us. We call this hypocrisy. Paul says here it's just to please people, and Jesus clearly says, you've got your reward. Your reward is that people think better of you. Congratulations. Instead, Christians are to work hard, not only on the things that get noticed, but on every single task that they set themselves to, working with sincerity. We work with sincerity in the dark as well as the light, for Jesus said there is nothing hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Luke 18, or excuse me, Luke 8. So we are to work sincerely, whether it's in the light or in the darkness, whether it is a major task, things that will get noticed or things that will not, we are to work sincerely with all of our hearts. But we are also to serve the Savior. We are also to serve the Savior. This is the answer to why. Why are we to work with all our hearts on everything we do? Paul says, It's very clear because you are not just serving your human masters. You're not just serving your boss. You're not just serving your company. You're not just serving the person who has asked you to do this, but you are working as though the Lord himself has asked you to do this thing. Certainly some of us feel like we are employed to do meaningless tasks or there are things that are asked of us that we don't feel are terribly important or insignificant and below us. We blame this sometimes on those who stand over us, that they are not respecting us. They're asking us to do things that are below our station or below our means. But consider, friend, that God isn't just the God of salvation, nor is Jesus simply the Lord of a kingdom, but he is both God and Lord over all of history. Everything that happens, happens at the hand of the Lord. When you were asked to do a meaningless and insignificant task, perhaps God is calling you to be humble. Perhaps he is demonstrating your own pride to you. Do not despise the Lord by thinking either that he has no control over the situation and is not directing with meticulous precision the things that occur in your life or that what he has given you to do is small and insignificant. (coughs) Again, in Luke we read, One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. There are so insignificant tasks in the kingdom of God. Perhaps instead of being insignificant, they carry great importance. Maybe God has given you these insignificant things to grow your patience and your steadfastness. Maybe he has given you these tasks to refine you, to show you how easily it is for you to be frustrated and prideful to think that you are too good for menial things that other people should do. Perhaps the Lord has given you these tasks to set in relief, in stark relief, those things which are truly important from those things that are not. You think that taking out the trash, maybe, is below you at your job. Okay. What is important then, friend? What is important? 
What do you spend your time doing that you think is so terribly important? And compare that to the things that God has called you to do. There are a good many reasons why God has given you to do the tasks set before you, whether they are large and important or whether they are seemingly insignificant. Do them then with your whole heart as though serving the Lord, for he is the one who has given them to you, not simply an earthly master. Also, there is a further reason why you are to serve your masters this way. You are to serve for satisfaction. You are to serve for satisfaction. Sometimes I get the idea that Christians think that they are only to serve out of duty, that the highest calling that you are ever to have is to lay down your life simply out of pure duty. And if you do these things out of duty, then you have reached the highest perfection of virtue. That is junk. You are to throw that out. We are not prosperity gospel preachers because we think that God rewards his servants. The prosperity gospel seeks what we seek. They're just seeking a cheapened form of it. They want the riches of the world, but Christ is holding out to you the riches of eternity. So, serve for satisfaction. Serve for the satisfaction of the inheritance that the Lord will give to you. Belief in God, rewarding his servants, is not somehow beneath the dignity or the righteousness of God. Hebrews 11.6 states, that without faith it's impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You'll notice that as basic of a belief in coming to God and saying he exists, right? In order to believe in God, you have to believe that he exists. On the same level of foundation and basicness is the belief that God will actually reward those. It is, if you don't think that God rewards people who do what he asks, it is, in essence, the same as thinking that he doesn't even exist. You're an atheist. So serve for satisfaction. Instead of working hard for treasures that rust and are nothing more than fodder for moths, work for that which is kept forever for you in heaven, which is incorruptible and imperishable, which God will give to you on the final day. Do everything you do then with an eye towards this, not of gaining earthly treasure and pleasure, but with an eye towards gaining what is eternal and everlasting and imperishable and incorruptible before God in heaven. He has a reward for you. There is then also a flip side to this. The wrongdoer, those who do not take Paul's advice, who act in ways behind closed doors, where their masters cannot see, who do wrong will be paid back for the wrong that they have done. You must, friend, always keep in mind that the Lord sees you. He sees you. Your master might not. He might not see the things you do. Your boss might not notice the things you do. He might not know how you speak of him. He might not know how lazy you are when he's not around, but the Lord certainly does. In Revelation 4, John describes the throne of God. He notes that there are four creatures on each throne, and each are full of eyes. Your mom might have eyes in the back of her head, but God has eyes everywhere. In a manner of speaking, God sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. And you get the point. This means that, yes, the Lord does know all of the things you do that are praiseworthy, and therefore you can do them in secret, knowing that your Father sees in secret and he will reward you for them. But it also means he knows all those things you do in secret, 
and he will reward you for them. If you do not do well, if you do what is wrong and blameworthy, God has both seen it and noted it. There is no partiality with him. He will judge you for those things. So Christian, as you work, keep these things in mind. Let the fact that God sees you press you to do your work well and diligently, to keep up doing that which is good and to forsake that which is wrong. For God is righteous and just, but gracious. He has more wealth than you can ever imagine. He is the only one who can actually print money on his own, right? Without inflation, okay? And he will give to you out of his storehouses. Wait and be patient for the Lord, but work diligently for that reward. Ultimately, your satisfaction has to be found here. If you work only for men and the rewards which they can give, you will find yourself by nature being a people pleaser. By nature. If you only do the work that men can make you, that men see, and only long for the rewards that they can give you, you will by nature only do work when they can see you. Frankly, it'd be stupid to do it otherwise. Who cares if you work hard when other people don't see you? What reward do you get from that? Perhaps some say, I have satisfaction in myself. Well, very good. Then you have reward of the earth. We are not to work like that. If your satisfaction is not found in the things that God will give you, ultimately that is God himself. You will only be a people pleaser, no matter how much you might try to say that you're not. Finally, Paul does also have words for masters. They are simply to serve. They're simply to serve. The curtness of Paul's words here to masters is not due to the fact that masters had it all to put together and that slaves needed more encouraging. It's probably more along the lines of the fact that most of you are not bosses and owners of businesses, but you yourself serve masters. Okay? And certainly in Paul's day, the Christian church, as it was growing up from its seeds, was very, very poor. The vast majority of people in the Colossian congregation would have been servants before they were ever considered masters. Nevertheless, Paul does write to them. You must serve, he says to them. The wording at the end of 4.1 implies that masters must see themselves not so much as masters, but as servants of God and stewards of labor. We talk about stewardship all the time. We talk about it in terms of money, right? That God has given you money. God has given you cash. He's given you assets. And you are to handle those things in a way appropriate to the Lord so that you realize, and we will teach, that everything is owned by God. It is all God's, and you have been given a share of it, and therefore you must steward it correctly. The same thing is going on here. Everyone serves the Lord. He is the Lord of all. But to some, he has given the stewardship of lordship. He has handed it to them. He has given them masters over other people. And so just as you steward your money correctly, masters, if you have people who are subordinate to you, who work under you, who listen to you and take your advice, you are to steward that labor well. You are to steward that labor well. Manage them as the Lord would manage them, helping where they're weak, rewarding them well, encourage them, be gracious and compassionate to them. Treat them as you would have the Lord treat you, for you too serve a master. The fact that Christian masters must treat their slaves or servants like, like 
the Lord treats them undermines completely, even here, the nature of slavery. What Paul is calling for here when he says that you are to treat them justly and fairly is equity. He's calling for equality. You treat them like you would be treated. You don't stand above them. There is every intention in here in undoing, again, the actual practice of slavery, whether in the first century, whether in the seventh century BC, or whether in the 21st century here. Done under Christian practice, the word slavery loses its meaning. There is no slavery. You, if you are a boss, if you are an employer, are only over your employees, only over those who serve under you in terms of authority and position, never in terms of the the image of God in you or in them or of value to Christ. Never. Dignity and value comes from God, not from either position or stature in life. These are not simple matters. Rather, the way you act and the way you work, the way you treat employees or you treat those who are in charge of you, and how the Bible treats slavery, all of these things are tied together. There are no less implications of the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord than our own salvation is. Think through that, Christian. How you act tomorrow morning at your work is no less an implication of the resurrection and crucifixion of our Lord than your own eternal salvation is. It is directly tied to it. God corrects and directs all of history, and we cannot escape that. His death and resurrection, likewise, has made us new again. Not only is God directing all of history, not only is he the Lord of all of history, but he is even directing our lives. He has made us new again. So no longer do we walk as the people of this world walk. No longer do we act like the employees of the world act. No longer do we act as though the bosses of this world act. But we act as redeemed people in every facet of our lives. We act as though the Lord is Lord of every part of our lives. So we now labor in all things for the Lord, for we are his workmanship, and we know by faith that God rewards his servants. Let us then work hard for the glory of God, so that even in our labor we might extol the goodness of our Savior, whether in tasks great or tasks insignificant, whether in tasks of authority or in tasks of submissiveness. Let us work as though we're working for the Lord, for indeed we are. Let us pray. Father in heaven, may your name be blessed above all things. You, Father, alone are the creator of all things, both great and small. You've made the sun, you've made the moon, whose light and heat are visibly there for us, and we give thanks daily for them. You've also created animals and plants, sometimes too wonderful to even think about, to understand is beyond us. And we give thanks for you, to you daily for the provision of these things. You've also created animals and plants that we've never seen, that we don't know of. You've, you've created Numerous things that you have kept concealed, even from us now, things that are growing in the Amazon and animals that swarm in the, in the outback that we can't even conceive of. For you are wonderfully creative. You labored, Father, in your creation. So too we labor. 
You have labored not just so that men will notice, but for your own good pleasure. You have kept many things hidden from us in distant galaxies, in black holes, for your own good pleasure. Let us, Father, do the same. Let us work when we work, whether in the dark or in the light, for your good pleasure. Let us take satisfaction in your smile and in your smile alone. Let us work for the praise of your Son to demonstrate our love for him and our diligence and care even for the most minor of tasks, not because it is our duty, but out of love for the one who cared for even the least of us. Let's do this for your glory and your honor. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.